0: The hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures, stamping. Properties. You
0: are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub, Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. created by Cora C. about change. The hub is about impact. 90%. The hub is for everyone.
1: Uh, so uh, good afternoon, everybody, and a very warm welcome to our latest Fellow in Focus event. My name is Kieran O'Neill. I'm Deputy Director uh, of Trinity Long Room Hub, which is Trinity's flagship arts and humanities research institute. And it's my job today to introduce the Fellow in Focus, Dr. Carly Kyo, who's sitting to my right here. Uh, Carly's with us for a couple of months, uh, and at long last, after a two-year COVID-induced delay, uh, but we're delighted to have her here and excited to see uh, what work is emerging. So Carly is the Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Communities at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia in Canada, previously worked at the University of the Highlands and the Islands and Glasgow Caledonian in Scotland. Uh, She researches religious minority migration and settler colonialism in the North Atlantic world. She's convener of the Scottish Historical Review Trust, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and chairperson and academic lead of the Goresbrook Research Institute for Atlantic Canada Studies. Uh, she's just published her second monograph, which I can wave at the all were here, um, Empire and Emancipation, Scottish and Irish Catholics uh, at the Atlantic Fringe, 1780 to 1850. It was published in February, so very recently, just a couple of months ago, by Toronto University Press. And while at Trinity, she's going to be working on a project called The Catholic Atlantic. And this is a project uh, which I'm involved with in as well. And it explores the links between Scotland, Ireland, uh, the Caribbean, and Northeastern uh, Eastern British North America. So what we now call Atlantic Canada, broadly speaking. So welcome Carly, delighted to have you here. looking forward to this chat. The format very simple. I'm going to ask questions for about half an hour or so, uh, and then open to the floor and to our audience online. The event is being streamed live on Facebook, and it will thus be recorded. Uh, If audience members would like to ask a question, that's great. Uh, We very much encourage you to do so, whether online or here with us in person. Uh, So if online, please just do use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. As with everything in the hope, we want our audience to participate and to be involved. Uh, So please do feel free to interact with us during the event. So my first question to you is about your kind of research journey to date. Uh, More than most researchers that I know, your own research agenda seems to sort of mirror your, your life um, and your personal journey through education. I'm kind of hoping you'll start us off by talking through your journey from rural Cape Breton through to Halifax and on to Glasgow, where you ended up doing a PhD on women religious, which eventually became your first book, Creating a Scottish Church. But how did all that happen?
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Um- When I was doing my undergrad, so I was actually supposed to do Irish studies at university because the university that I went to, St. Mary's, was the only place in Atlantic Canada that offered Irish studies, so I was committed to that. Then I got there and I got distracted and I got interested in other things. Um, But I didn't lose focus on the Irish dimension for my honours and I looked at Irish female migration. And then uh, I got an opportunity in my fourth year to go on exchange to the University of Glasgow and started to see evidence of an awful lot of migration across to Scotland, and I didn't know this coming from Canada. I didn't realize the connections. I also didn't realize that in in Canada, the relationship between Scotland and Ireland is always sort of painted as very close, but then when you look at the relationship um, between Irish and Scottish Catholics, when you get to Scotland, you realize that that it wasn't actually close in, in any way. Um, And so that was really interesting to me. I decided to to stay on at Glasgow for uh, my PhD and look at Irish female migrants. And I quickly realized the only place where I could get really interesting, genuine primary source material that wasn't printed were in convent archives. And so I I just started researching uh, women religious, kind of by accident, because I followed the source material, not because I had any intention to do Catholic history, and then realized um, I was. I think because I was female, because I I was developing um, knowledge, I started to get access to a lot of collections that other people maybe weren't able to access. And it was the foundation of my first book. And and it was an interesting time because Catholic history wasn't really being done in Scotland. I'm not sure how many people are aware of the situation over there, but um, it it really wasn't in vogue. But I I came from a place where. Catholicism was really part of the Scottish migrant story, and I was curious about, well, how come um, Scottish migrants would identify strongly as Catholics where I come from, in Nova Scotia or Atlantic Canada, but over here, Catholics are seen as not part of the Scottish nation? And I didn't understand that, and so that was a big question that I addressed with my PhD and then my first book. So creating a Scottish church was all about trying to understand how the Catholics in Scotland were adjusting and trying to paint themselves into this story of the nation, where they belonged, but had been excluded from.
1: So, uh, I'm, I am really—I mean, your, your research seems has kind of evolved to, to, to think sort of outward in, in the Emperor, I'm going to ask you that in a minute, but I want to stick with you this topic of Catholic history for a minute, because, you know, I first came across your work and I knew you as a historian of Catholics and Catholicism if you like, but one who focused on you know, issues of gender, and, but also on embattled minority Catholic pop- populations, either in Scotland and then later in imperial contexts. Of course, like sitting here in Ireland, as we are, being a historian of Catholics can have a sort of different feel to it. You know, it's not a minority, it's a majority, and so on. And we're, you know, at this moment experiencing or witnessing a widespread decline in practice and contestation of the church authority in public life. So it's clear that our relationship with the Catholic Church is changing in the Irish context. And so I wanted to ask you in your sort of 20-odd years researching in the area of Catholics uh, and Catholicism and Catholic experience, uh, what changes are you seeing emerging in research in this area? And what sort of work still remains to be done? What are you excited about at the moment?
0: I'm excited about a lot more PhDs are starting to happen in Catholic history, at least in Scottish universities that I'm aware of. And when I was doing my PhD over 20 years ago, I was the only one. And I remember there was myself and a colleague who did, um, who studied Margaret Thatcher, and we were sort of seen as the weirdos because I was the one who did nuns, and he was the one who did Thatcher. We kind of sapphire by ourselves. Um, but I think there's been more of a, a willingness to engage with a broader picture of what Scotland is like. Um, but then also when you, when you move across the ocean to Canada, um, There's more of a curiosity and a need to understand the role that the church played in creating um, civil society, participating in the structures of colonialism that ultimately led to where we are today, which is dealing with a legacy that is quite damaging. And so I think there's a curiosity um, and an open-mindedness to say, okay, we now need to start looking into this and we need to have serious research. Um, and it isn't just within the realm of practicing Catholics, it has to be done um, by historians who are trained as historians and can be dispassionate um, and 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 get access to the material and then start to share that.
1: So trying to take Catholic history out of what can be sometimes quite a niche yeah. kind of environment and, and make it more mainstream.
0: Yeah, and that niche. has to happen. You also have to dilute the thinking. You have to start... Um, bringing in different ideas and different experiences to to look at at a topic in new ways. I think one of the reasons why I was able to do what I did in Scotland was because I wasn't from there, and so I didn't have community ties, um, and I was able to kind of navigate maybe tricky situations without actually knowing I was in the middle of them to begin with. Sectarianism is, is, is one.
1: Yeah, so sometimes being sort of an outsider and asking the question no insider would ask can be a real asset in the archival process. Yeah, it it was really helpful. Oh, (laughs) bless the Canadian look at that stupid question. Yeah, well, I I understand. I'd like to have a chat about your latest book. (laughs) Uh, It's just out at the University of Toronto Press. It's called Empire and Emancipation, Scottish and Irish Catholics at the Atlantic Fringe. Um, So the first question is a very basic one for, for people who haven't read it yet. How do you define the catholic fringe or the atlantic fringe what does that mean
0: so when i was researching this book when i started a while ago what started to pop up in the materials the archives and libraries were um, pretty significant catholic populations that were old catholic populations large catholic populations in certain parts of the Atlantic world. So I started to see uh, places like Cape Breton and Nova Scotia. They were two separate colonies at the time. Um, Trinidad, uh, different colonies or territories in the Caribbean, Newfoundland, of course, Prince Edward Island. These were all colonies that had sizable Catholic populations before major migrations started to happen. Many of those populations were actually French, Spanish, um, enslaved people, uh, and then Irish and Scots started to come in. And I was really curious about those kind of unfashionable parts of the empire that people don't, they tend to overlook, but particularly when you think of the American Revolution, Northeastern British North America became really, really important for the British Empire. And so the people that were populating those colonies became really important, and a number of those people were Catholics, they were Irish and Scottish Catholics.
1: So what changes about our our understanding of that moment, 1780 to about 1850? If we look at it from the position of these so-called peripheral Catholics in unfashionable parts of the Empire, how does it change the picture for us? What changes?
0: I think um, from my perspective and what I've seen, there was far more of an ability to advocate for rights and to push the boundaries of citizenship. So we get participation, particularly of Irish Catholics in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton, very early. And then claiming a space of, um, uh, within the colony, almost saying, we are here just like you, we need equal representation, we need rights, by the way, we're also fueling your economy, so this is what we feel we're entitled to. I didn't see that, for example, in Scotland. And and I think they also recognized that that they could actually apply the, the label Britain to themselves, or British to themselves, and it was going to get them a long way and it's going to get them privileges that they could never have accessed at home. And then and then there are consequences of that for um, indigenous peoples, for
1: example. So one of the really interesting things about your book is it, it sort of takes two or three fields that aren't always in conversation with each other uh, and sort of forces them into the interaction. So when I was reading, I was really thinking about you know, Scottish and Irish sector colonials at the margin of empires. These are people who are coming along, settling on you know, fairly large plots of land, much larger than what many of them would have come from, um, and you know, taking an active generational kind of part in, in, in the British Empire, or any other empire that would give them land at any one time. And so that brings, especially in the Irish context, you into conflict with the, the overarching narrative of the Irish diaspora, which is that the push factor is more important than the pull factor your book's all about pull factor. It's all about the possibility to, for Irish Catholics or Highland Scots, Scots who are being, you know, pushed out of their own uh, traditional territories. It's all about the pull factor that brings them into the empire. Yeah. How? I mean, how? How does that change the picture of Scottish and Irish history?
0: So it's it's a it's a really complicated picture. I think that is starting to emerge. Where I come from in Nova Scotia, the idea of the cleared Highlander is, is pervasive, and it, and people are very attached to that narrative. It's a little bit difficult when you then walk up to them and say, right, well, here, here are the land grants that your people asked for, demanded in fact. Um, this is how long they've had them. Many of them are still on the land. Um, there was an act of... Process of colonialization or colonization that your people participated in, um, that changes things a little bit. It's harder to constantly then say we we were forced out, we were forced out. Uh, things happened to us, and I think that that's true when when you're in the your home nation. But then when you look in the, the colonies and the territories, it's really different, and they they were very active in perpetrating. Um, dispossession of Indigenous peoples, um, but also expanding the uh, authority of the British state. Like, it worked in their interests. Yeah. So that's something that I see. Um, and sometimes the, the groups that I study, and the Irish Catholics are the same in the place where I, and I'm, I'm of that background. So my background is Acadian, which is a, a kind of French-Canadian, but Acadian from the East, um, and then um, Irish. And so my, my people were in various ways involved in that process. It's
1: worth kind of sticking on that for a moment because we've seen from your research journey from Cape Breton through Halifax into Glasgow and now having moved back to Halifax, you know, and back to Nova Scotia, you're now working on a project where you, you're analysing Cape Breton as, as a colony, as it as it transferred from being a Mi'kmaq, indigenous, held piece of land to one that was actively settled by people that you descend from. So all of a sudden you're having to confront your own positionality in relation to the process of settler colonialism in a very direct way. What's that changing about your research process what's that like to undergo? It's really hard. It's hard because you don't want to mess it up
0: because there's a lot of sensitivities, rightly so, and you don't want to do any more damage than what's already being done. Um, And I think positionality is really important because if you have to walk into a room and say to your family to your friends to your community that we have to rethink things it's a lot easier for me to walk into my home community and say that and then say and i do too particularly because i come from us um and i think that's a that's something that we in canada need to be willing to do but it is hard and, and i do worry often am i getting it wrong um how am I getting it wrong or what do I need to do to be more aware of um, how, how do I for example understand an, uh, an, a need for the in, indigenous knowledge and how can I incorporate that when I don't even know where to start to access it because I, I don't come from those traditions.
1: Yeah. So how to set up a dialogue that is respectful of the power imbalance and of hierarchy down to the present as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, and again, something you didn't bring the, you talk about the great benefit of being the outsider in, in Glasgow and being able to sort of inveigle your way into, into combat archives because of that, but this is a different level of baggage you can bring into your topic. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting.
0: and it's shaping Canadian politics right now. And so there's a big responsibility that comes with this research.
1: So, I'm going to come back a little bit to the question of activism and sort of activism in your research towards the end. But I, I wanted just to think about the project that you do right now and the way that connects you know, from your sort of home territory, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, uh, down to the Caribbean. And you've been working on Trinidad, um, Grenada, Dominica for some years now. And you're starting to think about Guyana and, and various other sort of places in that sort of greater Caribbean, and particularly, let's call it the unfashionable Eastern Caribbean. How does the empire look differently and the Catholic empire look differently when you take a Caribbean perspective as opposed to an Atlantic Canadian or an Irish or Scottish or British?
0: Uh, It looks really, really different, partly because the majority of the people were enslaved. And what I've seen and we've seen in our research is that the church is very active in working with the British state to, to enable itself to retain control. And so it's making... Decisions and sacrifices about its own authority that it wouldn't normally make um, to maintain a connection and, and kind of a foothold in those places. Trinidad is a really good example, and we see it in how the first bishops were kind of not the first bishops, but after Britain acquired Trinidad, how the bishops were um, selected, and the British government wanted English bishops, and then when it when it ran out of English bishops, because people didn't want to go to Trinidad, it was seen as a place where could like die because of the disease, um, then they kind of settled for Irish. Um, not because they wanted them, but because they were available. And so you're seeing how the power structures in the empire are playing out on the ground through the Catholic church. And the British state was paying for chapels, it was paying um, for vestments, it was paying for priests' houses
1: and schools. Like it was it was a partnership. The lead Catholic infrastructure essentially. Yeah, yeah in a way that just wouldn't have tolerated the Home context. Yeah. yeah,
0: they were paying for um, um, the Eucharist, like if that was mentioned in in Britain, that like transubstantiation was one of the really big um, uh, problems for for many in Britain in terms of the, the Protestant
1: belief. What's the kind of social spread of Catholics that you're seeing in a place like Trinidad? I mean, you know, are we talking about middle class elite? Are we talking about people who are, you know? opportunists, sojourners, merchants, what's the mix of people that you're finding in your research? All of them. Um, and most of my experience
0: in this would come from the Scottish dimension, uh, and and we're finding that, that all classes, all groups are represented there. And so you can't say it's just an endeavour of the elite, um, because every single group of people is represented
1: there. So, I mean, your research is kind of changing the Irish and Scottish narrative about Colonialism. And, and there's a very different story in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, as compared to Trinidad, where there's a competition and a distribution across different empires and so on. How do you think your work changes the way we think about British Empire, in, in, in a sense? Does it have does it have something new to say about British imperialism in, in the Caribbean and so on?
0: Yeah, Catholics were part of it, a big part of it. So when you talk about Britain as a Protestant empire, that's wrong, it's factually incorrect. Because you have constituencies that are now being highlighted as active participants in the process. You have people that are Scottish Catholic and they their entire, as far as they can count back, are, are, they identify as Catholics, and then there's a, a change in government and suddenly they're not part of it. That doesn't work. So that's what we're saying. Um, the Protestant empire, doesn't it doesn't work when you start looking at other groups.
1: Right. So, I mean, I'm excited to see what comes from that. And it's interesting to see how it's developing, you know, beyond, but the the threads are still evident in the book that you've just published, I think, of all these things. But it seems that your new work has to take account of indigenous and enslaved perspectives in a way that maybe the the book that's just out had started to do, but, but, you know, this is an evolution. Is that one of the major changes, you think, in your in the work you're doing right now here at the home.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I see that book as a foundation. It enabled me to create a foundation that I can now use to start looking more in-depth at um, colonial structures. And I can't provide an enslaved or an indigenous perspective. I, I'm not capable of that. But what I can do is, is start to make space for it and, and recognize that this is an area that we need to explore and we need to deal with. Um, and that's where collaboration and partnerships come in. But it's also hard because when you want um, and you know you need to include, for example, an indigenous perspective, your whole way of researching has to change because a European method of research doesn't gel with um, the the story of of an indigenous experience. It's a a completely different way of of knowing. And, And that's something I'm learning.
1: Great. So in the last section, and before we go over the um, audience questions, I just wanted to talk to your own activism, which is academic activism in, in two areas. Uh, one, I want to talk about your work with rural communities, which I see as a sort of a through line uh, all the way through your time in academia, from your work in the, in the Highlands um, to your current work in uh, SMU Nova Scotia. And secondly, I want to talk about how you work with scholars at risk in the humanities and how you see your historical work on migrants you know, in, in historical context, has been very relevant to the present-day picture. And so first, your, your work with communities. Why is that important to you, and why is it important to do
0: So my very first academic job was with the University of the Highlands, and it was with the Centre for History in Dornoch, which is up in Sutherland. And the person um, who hired me was uh, a man named Jim Hunter, and he is a really influential uh thinker and writer when it comes to highland history and land and community development. And he hired a bunch of us, there were five of us, and we were all early career, and he just said, build a history department, and by the way, go out into the communities. And so we did, because we we also did, it was kind of neat, because we didn't have senior scholars telling us what we couldn't do, so we just did really neat things and we did whatever we wanted. And one of that, one of those things was building partnerships with local communities. And I, um, when I was doing my PhD, I had worked with West of Scotland secondary schools in in disadvantaged areas. And so I recognized that, you know, it would be probably really good if I worked with with local school pupils. Also because one of my first projects was looking at the links between the highlands and enslavement in the Caribbean. And one of the the schools that was still operating, René's Royal Academy, had a cabinet of records from the 18th century. And so what an amazing opportunity to work with the senior pupils with material in their own school to figure out what the student cohort looked like, where they came from, what they studied, and it was a wonderful project. And then the students themselves started to see why they mattered and why their communities why it was important to look into the past of their communities. And one of the things I remember one of the students saying was, wow, they were way more diverse than we are today. Because they had students coming in from a number of Caribbean islands. And so they were able to see these things. And that just continued. It was just something that I did. Um, Worked out well because of REF, you know. but it was just something that I did. Um, And uh, I think that as an academic who is funded by the public, or in part funded by the public, um, we shouldn't have the luxury of just sitting in our offices. We do have social responsibility, and we do, for also the the survival of the humanities, we have to demonstrate why it matters, and we actually need to take that into the communities. We shouldn't wait for someone to tell us to do that. That's my perspective. I know that it's not easy to just trudge out into communities in whatever form they take and start doing things. but we, we
1: have to. I've, I've heard you talk about universities as sites of exclusion you know in different contexts. I mean so when you went back to your sort of home university where you started at SMU Halifax, you know how did you confront that idea of universities as sites of exclusion? What happened with that? Well so when I was growing up um, I
0: never met, I'd never met anybody who'd gone to university in, well I've met people who'd gone to university but nobody ever came to my school from the university except recruiters because they wanted our money, but they didn't want to work with us. And so there was a colleague of mine in the English department, Alexander McLeod, and we we're both from um, a rural, com- rural rural community you know, in Cape Breton, and we thought, well, why don't we build a program for local high schools where we, we spend two hours once a week for 12 weeks and build a project with them. And so it was an eight-hour drive once a week to very rural Nova Scotia, to, to work with the students and to say, we actually think you're really important. We think your communities are really important. We're not here to recruit you. We're here to actually work with you and um, and get you thinking about high-level humanities research. And it was good. It's also like when you come from a small community, like you need to be committed to that community going forward. Hopefully you don't just disappear. Um, but rural, the rural world, I think, gets excluded often, um, partly because the population isn't there. Um, but people like the rural world for a number of reasons. But if nobody's there, if nobody stays, then we've got a problem. I mean, food insecurity is one of them. Yeah.
1: So the, I wanted to just think about your work on migrants and migration, and think about how that connects up to your work with scholars at risk. right? So it seems that like you're, you're really interested in migration in a really holistic, holistic sense. Like, how has one impacted the other?
0: Yeah, so this is interesting, and it's a big, big part of what I do. Um, I In 2015, I was invited to a workshop in Amsterdam because of the significant numbers of migrants that were entering Europe. And so um, an organization brought together a bunch of different academics from a range of fields, like medics, to history, to engineers, to physicists, whose work in some way touched on migration. And and at the time, I was the uh, co-chair of the Young Academy of Scotland, and and I, you know when you go to those conferences and you've got, everybody's really smart in the room, but you're like, nothing's gonna happen from this, because everybody keeps talking, but there's nothing practical that's gonna come out of this. So on the flight home, I remember thinking, the role that I had in Scotland at the time kind of gave me a little bit of an ability to implement a program um, uh, with the, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which was to, to enable displaced academics in Scotland to, to, to become members of the Young Academy of Scotland, which is an elite organization and there would be no way um, for colleagues to gain access without a, like a program. Um, and it started in 2016, it's been one of the most successful they've had. And then I was in an organization, the Golden Academy, and I co-founded the same thing, and I'm now president of the Royal Society of Canada's college, and we're doing the same thing. It's like when you deal with a topic like migration, and you, you the world I understand is academia, so the colleagues that I could advocate for, from a position of truth, um, were other academics who were forced to leave their home countries. And, and so, also, working with, with those colleagues has taught me a lot about the, 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 the process of migration for somebody who's displaced, because you see people who are your friends experiencing this, and often I feel powerless, but I think that shouldn't stop us from, from do,
1: doing things. Right, and from changing institutions from within, which seems to be a big thing. With, I mean, as in, a lot of your work has happened within what are quite classically sort of elite structures. Is that the best place to do this work?
0: It's the place where you can get really serious awareness and traction because it brings together representatives from a lot of institutions. So there are a lot of colleagues um, working at their own home institution to try to find placements or provide space or support. Um, But when you deal with something like a national academy or society, you actually are able to let a a lot of university leaders know about a problem and then ask them to help. I have not faced any pushback from any of those organizations. They've all been 100% supportive of me. And I I wasn't sure that that was going to be the case. But even now with the Royal Society of Canada, everybody has been, how can we help, rather than, oh, I don't know that we can do that. Right. And, and yeah, those structures have to change um, and so I kind of had an ability
1: <laughs> to work within them okay, no, great. It's good, it's good to hear that it, it is possible, and this brings me to my last question before I go over to the audience um, I know you've been actively involved from your time in Scotland with work around slavery and legacies of slavery and colonialism in institutions and universities, because you've done this work in Scotland and now uh, have been involved in conversations in Halifax with Dalhousie who did a big report on uh, their slave legacies and their colonial legacies a few years ago that I know you were, you were involved with. And um, what's your sense of whether or why that work is important? And I say that from a Trinity point of view because we're currently thinking about those things ourselves.
0: Yeah, I think um, it, it is really important, partly because we bring in students, we're supposed to bring in students from all groups, from all around the world. Um the institutions as they've been built up have been built up in wonderful ways, in problematic ways, in painful ways. I, I think it's important that we recognize all of those and that we also start to be honest about what are the connections, who funded that building by the way. And you can walk around all the universities in not all the universities, but a number of the older universities in the UK and you can link many of them to money that came from the empire. And it's not just the Caribbean, right? It, you'll, you can point to India, you can point to North America. And I think it's part of the process of, of creating a more healthy narrative that makes space for people to feel like they, they can belong somewhere. I mean, as a woman, I will walk around a university. If I see paintings of a lot of men, it doesn't really make me feel like it's a place that I belong. But if there starts to be a conversation about changing that, then all of a sudden I can feel part of that conversation. And I wouldn't want our students in Ireland, Scotland or Canada to ever feel that they don't have a place in our universities or colleges.
1: Okay, that's great. Really interesting. So, so uh, now's the point at which I, I sort of go over to the floor. And to our online audience, and, and see what great questions will come from there uh, as opposed to, to, to from our conversation. So, I have a question here in the back. Yeah, please Thanks very much. Um, one quick question first. You mentioned uh, going to university to, to do Irish study and then you got distracted. But what was the impetus, first of all, to do Irish studies? was
0: it, your, your background in that? Um, and the other thing I was really interested in what you talked about with the schools and how you were engaged in the schools. And, we're talking about responsibilities and I was wondering how you saw the role of public history in changing the narrative and actually, you
1: know, bringing different voices to the, the story. And obviously the school is one very interesting way of perhaps changing the, at a certain age, but I wonder if you had any other
2: thoughts on, on that.
0: Yeah, um, so the first question, Irish studies, I was sort of, um, it was my background, and and it was, was, I think, something my family was really keen on, so then I was like, yeah, okay, that's what I'll do. Um, And then I got there and got to make my own choices, and um, history was pretty fun. (laughs) Um, But in terms of the uh, public history, I think it's really, really important. And I think that there's a a growing, and certainly in Canada, we have a number of public history programs that are starting to emerge, even in my own department, um, because there's a, a real keenness from the students to have experiences that are beyond the classroom. So a lot of the courses that we're developing, include partnerships with different organizations that are around Halifax or Cape Breton or wherever but even when I was in in Scotland and um, there were there was there was a lot of interest in partnering and then students participating in that partnership and seeing how they can work beyond the academy and how their research can actually matter at a practical level one thing I I'm A little worried about with PhDs at the moment is when they leave they think that the only thing they can do is work in the university and their skill set is so diverse that it would be really great if we did more to help them um, integrate into other employment sectors, partly because other employment sectors want critical thinkers, partly because wouldn't it be great if we could have um, a real range of highly trained professionals that can just apply really new ideas. Yeah. And also have an understanding of the need for culture and heritage preservation and interpretation.
3: <laughs> the more
1: PhDs the better. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Uh, thank you so much. Was really,
3: uh, so that I had two questions. The first one, I really appreciate what you said about wanting to go into a space and knowing that you can never represent perspectives or the experiences or the knowledge, the tacit knowledge from people who are from migrant uh, backgrounds, but how how do you practically hold space for that within your research? How are you practically making space for that within the academy? So that's my first question. My second question is about the rural background. I feel really, really deeply connected to this as well, being from a rural place, and also not being a lot of people went to university and being the one to go. And you never want to let that Make you separate from the community that you came from, and you feel like you have a responsibility to be that bridge. So, from your own experience, um, when you're going into rural communities, is there a desire for that? Is there? Is it just you going into the rural communities with other academics? Do you have a larger team of other people who are helping make these connections? Is that-
0: it's usually, like with me, it's very grassroots, and so um, I've Usually, the the program that I'm involved with at St. Mary's, I started with my colleague because both of us came from that place, from rural Cape Breton. And so when you go home and you go into schools that you came out of, the the students, they're really keen. And what I've noticed, the, the young women are particularly interested to hear what I was able to do because they just, it's like they're looking for someone to say, you can do this too. Like, we had a, a really interesting conversation with a group of students at one of the schools. So we spent two years in each school in the county. And uh, I had a really interesting um, kind of opening session with, one of the, with the, the students, and they were all talking about what they wanted to do at university, and all the young women started saying, nursing, nursing, nursing. And then one woman said, um, well, I'm really interested in, in, in babies, so I'll, I'll do nursing with small children. And I said, well, what about being a, an obstetrician? And then she was like, oh. And so, but when you come from a place where it's not common, or you come from a family that you, you don't have doctors in your family, it's, it's not something that maybe you see that you can do. And so it just takes someone saying, oh, well, you can do a PhD, and it's not a big deal. Um, that makes a difference. Or you can be an obstetrician, get your marks up in science, <laughs> and you can get in. Um, So I I think that that, that, that's for for that question. For the the making space, um, it's trickier in research, I find, than in the other organizations that I'm involved with. The other organizations, we actually just say we are making space. So we are going to include a more diverse range of colleagues. We are actually going to reserve spaces because it hasn't been happening and it's taking too long and enough is enough. So it's actually easier, I find, in those organizations. In research, one of the one of the real challenges is um, Indigenous colleagues um, colleagues of, of color are asked to do so much now that you, you do not want to overload people with all of these requests. And so I find just building relationships and just saying it's I'm here, and then waiting for. People to contact um, me and say oh I would like to do this um, or reaching out to people who have who I have a relationship with and just say I think this would be really important for you to comment on um, but no pressure and sometimes that sometimes they have the desire to do that in the time and sometimes they don't um, but I think making um, options available is important like we still get books that have 90% male contributors. In my opinion, the editors have failed because that says that you, they couldn't get a, a more representative um, group of scholars to contribute to a book. You know, when I review an article for publication and like 70 out of 73 footnotes are male colleagues, like that's a problem. Like, these are big problems, and so just flagging these and actually saying, this isn't acceptable, we need we need to make corrections, is important. Doesn't always make me the most popular person in the room. I'm tough. I can take it.
1: Um, any more questions? <laughs> yes, Dave. He
0: says quietly. So <laughs> <No, that's good. laughs> <laughs>
1: Hi, no, I so much there. It's, it's great. I just want to but a little question really relating to some of the earlier part of the conversation that you kind of interested in. And this relates really to me, the Irish and Scottish in uh, the various theatres that you've been looking at and the, the, the various settings that you've been looking at. And I'm, just, I'm given the extraordinary prominence of uh, Scottish migrants at all levels in empire in the 19th century, and given a rather different place for... Irish in the Empire. What well, I'm interested in is, can one track, let's say, Irish, be they Catholic or Protestant, who, who are in Scotland, being part of that Scottish building? Uh, in other words, they carry a bit of, of multiple baggage with them uh, abroad. So migrants to
0: Scotland and then secondary migration? Second generation or whatever involved oh.
1: in Empire. I mean, is there a story there? Maybe there isn't.
0: I think there is a story there. Um, but I don't know it because I haven't tracked so much the secondary migration. I've tracked it from within a colony. so for example secondary migration within what would become Atlantic Canada. I see that, but I, I haven't yet seen um, Irish migrants in Scotland who, even in the next generations but I haven't been looking for it. So that's a really good question and I think there needs to be research on it. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Jill. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. That was really interesting. Uh, I guess in my in what I'm working on, I'm looking more at the Protestant side of the process of colonization and empire and all those things. And so I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about how you do history when you're telling the story of you know the colonized who become colonizers, just the complexities of that and the challenges of that and just kind of how you do that. How we do
0: it. I suppose it wasn't planned, but one of the big changes for me actually that started that book was um, a friend. He used to be the keeper of the Scottish Catholic Archives, and he called me up and he had just received a deposit, a temporary deposit. Um, a, a monastery, a Benedictine monastery, had closed just outside of M&S, and its papers were being held at the Scottish Catholic Archives and there was a diary in there of an assistant surgeon, uh, a Royal Navy assistant surgeon, and he was a Catholic. And he's like, this is a really interesting diary, I think you should probably come down and see that. And so I went over, and that diary was a really interesting change for me in my thinking, because he was very clearly writing as an an imperialist, as a participant in, in expanding the empire but also at the same time reflecting on what it feels like to be like the only Catholic on a ship or to be outnumbered um, within the the, the medical service in the Navy. And and then when you read more into it, um, you start to see this collection of people that he built around himself, which was a bunch of other Irish Catholic surgeons who were creating this network among themselves um, and going out into empire and doing their job um, but also advancing their own careers and so for me I think doing it when you start looking at individuals and how they acted and then and then in the archival work you start to see more and more of that happening um, that's one of the ways I do it your question is enormous really I mean your question is my entire book <laughs> yeah yeah well it's just it's
2: like you know there's this whole kind of animus to being Protestant and being patriotic about what the empire was doing and so I think it's just that thing of is it a thing of self-interest or, you know, pushing forward your own, you know, and, and kind of, you know, in Ireland, period, I'm looking at the end of the 18th century, it's uh, Catholics are without polit- political right um, And so yeah, I think I just, in seeing your work, I was, it's tricky to, to kind of tell this story about people that are subjugated or oppressed, but then also in some cases go on to oppress others, I mean, yeah,
0: no, but they also, it, it's a really interesting exercise in agency, right? So people, um, it is for personal gain, it's because they believe in it. So, for example, in the Highlands, uh, after the Jacobite uh, rising in 1745 46, and then the attack on Highland ways of life and living in the Highlands, um, there was a really strong military tradition in many of the families. And so That was part of how they were. One of the things that they really wanted back was this ability to contribute militarily to empire. And so they're actually arguing for that in the late 18th century, saying, we will raise regiments for you. Can you let us raise regiments for you? But Catholic relief doesn't come to Scotland until 1793, so much later than England or Ireland. It's not that they didn't want to participate. They, they did, um, and often it was to kind of reclaim this right that they actually felt they had. Um, so it's, it's really messy, um, but I think just because somebody is Catholic and somebody is Protestant doesn't mean that their motivations are fundamentally different. Um, they celebrated the same things when it came to imperialism and, and empire, because they all saw themselves as part of enabling it. We of course have to deal with the consequences of it. But, but it was something that
1: they all felt motivated for in various, various ways. And I think one of the great things in Cardi's book is you see all these, um, you know, like a cynical, or natural ability of, of Irish and Scottish Catholics to be able to present themselves as loyal, uh, as, you know, like Catholics or extreme Catholics, you know, they're able to show a different face to whoever yeah. they needs to see it in order to advance their and their community's interests. And that happens all the time in, in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to make sure I'm not cutting out any questions from our We don't have any audience.
0: questions, but we do have a comment, and let's just say many thanks to All Concerned for a very interesting discussion, and that's
1: from George or Dougherty. Okay, thank that's you. great. <laughs> Super. So I'm going to draw the event to a close, um, but uh, before doing so, I want to thank uh, our great Hub events team, so Francesca and uh, Aquila, and everybody else, as always. And, of course, I really want to thank Carly for giving us a brilliant career of your uh, a brilliant tour of your career and your work, uh, and how all those things that you've
2: that done. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank oh, you the nice of the, nice that's the, that's the nice. Library? As
3: well as being haired
0: the hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Carlson. Start the hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. And the rise of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.